Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest in it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 203. Its title is Investing More Like Poker or Chess? Or is life more like poker or chess? I spent a lot of time playing both chess and poker as a teenager particularly in the eighth grade, where I had a very influential teacher. His name was Bob Hotze. He was the English teacher, but he also, I guess, was the drama teacher, but didn't even, I don't think he got paid to be a drama teacher, but he would put on a, a musical every year, He'd go to France every summer, and he would organize his desk into sort of groups uh, of six to eight desks pushed up together. And I would play poker at those desks during class. I would secretly shuffle the cards, hand them out to my classmates in our little island of desk. Never got caught. And I thought I was pretty cool. I was able to play. The teacher never called me out. Until many years later, I realized maybe I wasn't quite that smart. Maybe he just overlooked it. Because he had called me out for other things. I remember being in the teacher lounge after school. We worked on a a news program, a few students and I, that this teacher had organized. And I borrowed a quarter from him to buy a soda from the soda machine. And unbeknownst to me, or at least to my rational mind, 30 minutes later, I pulled out four quarters from my pocket to do a magic trick. The next day, the teacher pulled me aside and and sort of pointed out this inconsistency. Hey, you borrowed money from me, and yet you had the money. I I didn't even realize it, or at least in my mind. It sort of was was kind of, I guess, an extreme form of mental accounting. I didn't connect the two events, borrowing the money and pulling out the quarters I used for my magic trick. And it was one of the first times I realized that my mind can play tricks on me, that it's not always reliable. Annie Duke is a former professional poker player. She holds a World Series of Poker Gold Bracelet from 2004. She's also an author, professional speaker, and decision strategist. Her new book is Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts book was recommended to me by Andrew, who's a listener and member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. And in the book, Annie discusses John Vanuman, who is a renowned scientist and father of game theory. He collaborated with William Poundstone to publish the book Theories of Games and Economics. came out in 1944. Vanuman was also a poker player. One of his friends was another scientist, Jacob Bronowski, who was a chess enthusiast. And they were in a taxi in London, and Bernowski asked John Van Neumann to to clarify, you mean the theory of games like chess? That's what it's about? And Bernowski says, here's what Neumann's response was. No, no, chess is not a game. Chess is a well-defined form of computation. You may not be able to work out the answers, but in theory, 
there must be a solution, a right procedure in any position. Now, real games, he says, are not like that at all. Real life is not like that. Real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of asking yourself, what is the other man going to think I mean to do? And that is what games are about in my theory. Annie Duke goes on to describe in her book that trouble follows when we treat life decisions as if they were chess decisions. Chess contains no hidden information and very little luck. The pieces are all there for both players to see. Pieces can randomly appear or disappear from the board or get moved from one position to another by chance. No one rolls dice after which, if the roll goes against you, your bishop is taken off the board. If you lose at a game of chess, it must be because there were better moves that you didn't make or didn't see. Poker, in contrast, is a game of incomplete information. It is a game of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty over time which he points out is is a pretty close definition to game theory. Decision-making under conditions of uncertainty over time. She goes on, In poker, valuable information remains hidden. There is also an element of luck in any outcome. You could make the best possible decision at every point and still lose the hand because you don't know what new cards will be dealt and revealed. Once the game is finished and you try to learn from the results, separating the quality of your decisions from the influence of luck is difficult. Investing and life are like poker, not chess. But that doesn't mean chess is an easy game. You have this this board of 64 squares arranged in an 8x8 pattern. Each player gets 16 pieces Each piece has a prescribed move, and the players take turns. World chess champion Gary Kasparov said the total number of possible moves in a given game of chess is more than the number of seconds that have elapsed since the Big Bang created the universe. Billions upon billions of potential moves. How would it be possible for anyone to predict what move would happen next? much less see 15 moves ahead. But grand masters can do it. They can instantly recognize the pattern and how a game will play out. You can take all, you can just sort of rearrange the board pieces or they can come in in the midst of a game they haven't even even been watching and see what's going to happen. If you move them around randomly, they they immediately recognize grand masters. That's just not a pattern of a game. You can recognize up to 50,000 game patterns. Because in chess, there's a right answer. There is no luck. Annie Duke writes, one of my favorite quotes from the book, the quality of our lives is the sum of decision quality plus luck. She talked about how poker players have a word that I had not heard of. It's called resulting. And resulting is when a 
a player, they're playing poker, and they have a number of losing hands, and there's a temptation to change their strategy. Because they believe the quality of the decision equals the quality of the outcome. So if they're losing, then they must be doing something wrong, as opposed to just having a string of bad luck. She writes, but as I found out from my own experiences in poker, resulting is a routine thinking pattern that bedevils all of us. Drawing an overly tight relationship between results and decision quality affects our decisions every day, potentially with far-reaching catastrophic consequences. What makes a decision great is not that it has a great outcome, A great decision, she writes, is the result of a good process. And that process must include an attempt to accurately present our own state of knowledge. That state of knowledge, in turn, is some variation of I'm not sure. Episode 97, I talked about the great financial crisis, which was really a defining moment in my investment career, as I suspect for many investment professionals. I really beat myself up after 2008. Our clients, portfolios I managed, we lost 25%. The overall stock market was down 32% in terms of the MSCI All-Country World Index. Yet my parents' portfolio that was managed was up, managing was up 2.8% in 2008. My personal portfolio was down 3.8%. 7%, far better than what I had done for my institutional clients because of the quality of my decisions. I sensed that something was going on. I could see it. But my decision quality and my confidence in managing institutional portfolios was not enough to convince my partners to adjust these portfolios that we were managing. Just wasn't quite sure what was going on. And there was an element of bad luck involved in that. It's not just skill. And sometimes it's hard to determine it. But what I came out from that is the quality of my decision process needed to be better in terms of having a more systematic approach of looking at what was going on with the economy. Because we place way too much emphasis on valuation and not enough on economic trends. Duke writes, when we work backward from results to figure out why those things happened, we are susceptible to a variety of cognitive traps, like assuming causation when there is only a correlation, or cherry-picking data to confirm the narrative we prefer. We will pound a lot of square pegs into round holes to maintain the illusion of a tight relationship between our outcomes and our decisions. We do that in investing a lot. When we see a bad outcome, I did it. Take the housing crisis, where many individuals lost money in houses and consider it their fault. When a lot of this downturn, maybe they just didn't have a lot of experience in doing that. 
Duke writes, if we buy a house and fix it up a little and sell it three years later for 50% more than we paid, does that mean we are smart at buying and selling property or fixing up houses? It could, but it could also mean there was a big upward trend in the market and buying almost any piece of property would have made just as much money. Or maybe buying that same house and not fixing it up at all might have resulted in the same or even better profit. A lot of previously successful house flippers had to face the real possibility between 2007 and 2009 when houses crashed. Were they then unskilled? So how do we improve the quality of our investment decisions? Recognizing that we will never know for sure. We have to be aware of what is going on. What are valuations? What are economic trends? What are crowds doing? What's the predominant narrative? Think about Bitcoin last fall in November, December, where there was just so much hype about it. And there were investors that bought or speculators at $15,000 per Bitcoin or 20 after such a huge run-up. We need to ask, is it investing, speculating, or gambling? Is it an investment with a positive expected return? Speculation where the, the sign of the return, it, it, there's some differing opinions on that. We're not really sure. Or is it gambling where it has an expected negative return? Is it something that's an investing investment for most people because it has a positive return, but our lack of knowledge makes it gambling for us because just how we implement it. Stocks are investments, but if we're trying to day trade with, with little information, then stocks could have a negative return for us. Duke writes, decisions are bets on the future. And they aren't right or wrong based on whether they turn out well on any particular iteration. An unwanted result doesn't make our decisions wrong if we thought about the alternatives and probabilities in advance and allocated our resources accordingly. When we move away from a world where there are only two opposing and discrete boxes that decisions can be put in, right or wrong, we start living in the continuum between the extremes. Making better decisions stops being about wrong or right but about calibrating among all the shades of gray. So we never really know for sure. We, we try to improve our, our, the information that we're getting to make the best decision under the circumstances, separate out the outcome from the quality of that decision process. But there's an additional risk uh, of trying to overanalyze, to force it, Force the decision. Before I address that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. 
It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky worked for years to study how we make decisions. And Kahneman's book is Thinking Fast and Slow. And he describes really two systems of thought. We have a a reflexive system, what he calls system one. It's fast thinking. And we have a more deliberative approach, slow thinking, that's system two. System two is really our, our prefrontal cortex. It's just really thin layer. Most of our brain is, is, is this system one, this fast thinking. It's, it's often subconscious. It's automatic. And sometimes when we're making decisions, we put too much dependence on this slow, deliberative thinking. And LaPerle and I listened to a book on, on this while we've been traveling for, for weeks now. Surprisingly, we don't. I haven't actually listened to that many books or podcasts for that matter. We spent a lot of time just talking in the car. But one of the books that we listened to was called The Tao of Pooh, in terms of Winnie the Pooh, by Benjamin Hoff. And he, he describes a concept called Uwe. And I thought of the quote when reading Annie Duke's quote, where she said, we will pound a lot of square pegs into round holes to maintain the illusion of a tight relationship between our outcomes and our decisions. The Dalapu says, when you work with Uwe, you put the round peg in the round hole and the square peg in the square hole. No stress, no struggle. Egotistical desire tries to force the round peg into the square hole and the square peg into the round hole. Cleverness tries to devise craftier ways to make pegs fit where they don't belong. Knowledge tries to figure out why round pegs fit into round holes, but not square holes. Uwe doesn't try. It doesn't think about it. It just does it. And when it does, it doesn't appear to do much of anything. But things get done. When you work with Uwe, you have no real accidents. Things may get a little odd at times, but they work out. And you don't have to try very hard to make them work out. You just let them. If you're in tune with the way things work, then they work the way they need to, no matter what you may think about it at the time. Later on, you can look back and say, oh, now I understand. That had to happen, so those could happen, and those had to happen in order for this to happen. Then you realize that even if you tried to make it all turn out perfectly, you couldn't have done better. And if you really tried, you would have made a mess of the whole thing. There's a book about 
Well, it's titled Trying Not to Try by Edward Singerlin. And he talks about this uwe concept, which is from ancient Chinese. It was first addressed, it's part of Taoism, but the, the Zhuangzi talks about it. And Singerlin quotes Zhuangzi, where he writes, Now, as for what most people do, what they find happiness in, I don't know whether in the end that is worth calling happiness at all. I look at what most people find happiness in, what the masses all flock together to pursue, racing after it as though they can't stop themselves. And I don't really know whether those who say they are happy are really happy or not. In the end, does happiness really exist or not? I take uwe to be the only kind of real happiness. What is right in the world and what is wrong is something that can never be determined for sure. That being said, uwe, let uwe determine right and wrong for you. When it comes to attaining ultimate happiness and invigorating the self, only uwe can get you close. What is this uwe? Singleton describes it, this, this Zhuangzian uwe is a state of perfect equanimity, flexibility, and responsiveness. Unlike the rigid conscious mind, it can determine right and wrong because it doesn't predetermine it. Being an uwe, he goes on, is sometimes compared to being like a pivot or a hinge, the still point at the center from which one can respond to every change every eventuality. When this and that are no longer set up in opposition, this is called the pivot of the way. Once the pivot is centered in its socket, it is able to respond inexhaustibly. Essentially, it's keeping balance between the system one, the fast thinking, relying on it, the subconscious, to not force everything and not be so dependent on the deliberative mind. I saw this on on this trip. Our son got an internship at Capitol Reef National Park. And it's in the middle of nowhere and he couldn't find anywhere to live. Just just not a whole lot, uh, nothing to rent. So he and his wife, they found a campground and they were going to buy a camper or trailer. And, and the Laprils been thinking about redoing a trailer and volunteer that instead of them spending most of their life savings trying to find a trailer that they're going to live in for a few months, that we would buy it. But that, we're traveling, we're going all over the country, driving an X3 that can pull about 3,000 pounds. And so now we have a problem. We're, We're across the country. We need to buy a trailer we're thinking, we're, 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 we're analyzing the problem. Should we get a, a hitch installed on our X3 so we can pull something? Should we buy it back east and pull it all the way west? Should we buy a pickup truck and then have to drive two vehicles? Because if we buy a real small trailer, that, that might not be much fun for them to live in. Buy something large, hard to pull, really taxing decision. And... We listened to the Tao of Poo, this, this concept of uwe, and decided just, just let it be. We'll wait and see how it evolves. We kept our optionality. We didn't commit to anything. We just let it be 
and try not to worry about it. We scheduled to we scheduled an appointment with BMW to get a hitch installed in Phoenix and gave ourselves a week to find a trailer in Phoenix where you're not going to have the mold issues because it's, it's so dry here. And the first day we were in Phoenix, LaPrille had struck up a relationship with the camp owner in Torrey, Utah, just to see if there was anything there available. That'd be ideal. Nothing, no inventory, no dealers. But she checked one more time and the camp site owner, she said, oh yeah, I got a friend that just decided they're going to sell their trailer. So we bought it, unseen, $2,000, 30-foot trailer. The problem was solved. Just kind of let it be. Now, that's hard to do. I, I, I'm not an Uwe specialist, but the concept intrigues me. This element of Taoism, that flexibility, the responsiveness, not being so dependent on the, the analytical mind, to solve everything, to sometimes just let things be and let time take its course. In episode 124, I, I told the story from the, the Zhuangzi that, of the cook who butchered an ox for a king. And he could just approach, well, it says, each stroke of the knife was perfect never hitting a bone or getting caught in a tangle. The whizzing sound the knife made was as music and the smoothness of each cut left the knife as sharp as the day it was made, even though it had never been sharpened. King notices the grace was the cook could prepare the ox. So he got great skill. What is, how do you do this? And the cook says, well, when I first started cutting up oxen, all I looked at for three years was oxen. I was unable to see all there was to see in an ox. He analyzed it. He looked at it. But later, he says, I encountered it with the spirit rather than scrutinizing it with the eyes. My understanding, consciousness, beholden to its specific purposes, comes to a halt. And thus the promptings of the spirit begin to flow. I depend on heaven's unwrought perforations and strike the larger gaps Following along the broader hollows, I go by how they already are, playing them as they lay. So my knife never has to cut through the knotted nodes where the warp hits the weave, much less the gnarled joints of bond. Singerlin kind of describes this, this story. This is a famous story. And he, and he likens it to three levels of listening or perceiving the world. The first is how the butcher Ding did it at first. He just laid his eyes on the ox in front of them. He just takes in sensory information, but has no idea what to do with it. The second is, is, is what he describes as listening with the mind. It involves regions like the, the, the prefrontal cortex, system two, the deliberative mind. Consciously analyzing information and relating it to prior knowledge. And then there's the third level, which is, has this uwe element to it. It's listening with the chi. He f- refers to it as shutting down the cognitive control regions of the brain, what we think of as the conscious mind, and letting the adaptive unconscious take over. 
He goes on, in the context of the early Chinese worldview, this unconscious is going to lead us in the right direction because it possesses a sacred quality. Like the spiritual desires in the Butcher Ding story, the qi is a force connected directly to heaven. Indeed, the Zhuangzi, for Zhuangzi, the spirit and the qi seem to be more or less synonymous. Both provide one with a pipeline to heavenly guidance. So kind of keep that balance between our conscious, deliberative mind, our subconscious, and, and let sort of this qi, this, this uwe, the Dao Pu says, using uwe, you go by circumstances and listen to your own intuition. This isn't the best time to do this. I better go that way, like that. When you do that sort of thing, people may say you have a sixth sense or something. All it really is, though, is being sensitive to circumstances. That's just natural. It's only strange when you don't listen. Hard to do. But the takeaway from this episode is, one, separate outcomes from our decisions from the process. Don't beat ourselves up over outcomes because there is an element of luck in life, an element of just uncertainty that we can't control. What we can control is our decision process. And to do that, we need to balance our analytical mind, our deliberative mind with our reflexive minds. And something, just wait, keep our options open, the optionality. And oftentimes, things will just take care of themselves as they did in, in found a trailer. Now we're, we're leaving Phoenix and heading home. So that's episode 203. You can get show notes and links at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, sign up for my free insider's guide and I'll send you those links each week in an email along with an essay article I do a week, another valuable content. You can sign up for that on my website, moneyfortherestofus.com, or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not provided investment advice, just general education on investing money, economy, etc., Have a great week.